Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Will Sipling, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. James K. Wellman, Jr. about his new book, High on God, How Megachurches Won the Heart of America, co-authored with Dr. Katie E. Corcoran and Kate J. Stockley, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Dr. Wellman, or Jim, is professor and chair of the Comparative Religion Program at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, and the author of other books such as The Gold Coast Church and the Ghetto and Evangelical versus Liberal, The Clash of Christian Cultures in the Pacific Northwest. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Will. Uh, That's a short introduction for a long career. Did you want to fill in any gaps before we get started about the book? Oh, you know, it's been, it, I've been studying uh, uh, religious congregations for a, a long time and didn't intend to study megachurches, but they became so popular and so big uh, during my career that it, it became obvious that this is, this is the what, this is the way uh, Americans do religion these days is, is through megachurches. Um, so that's kind of what brought me to the project. So that desire to study churches in particular, which turned into, well, well, this book, the culmination of, I think you said about four years of research. How did you get started in jumping into going to various megachurch church services? What, what, what kind of invoked, what was the inspiration behind the book and your studies for it? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, my, my dissertation uh, was on a liberal megachurch. Um, and <clears throat> in general, most megachurches in America are evangelical of one type or another. Um, and so I've always been interested in how uh, religion functions well and why uh, do certain churches grow? Why do certain religions grow? Um, and so early on, I was, I was fascinated by a, a downtown church in Chicago, uh, Fourth Presbyterian Church, and it was uh, nearly a 4,000 member church itself which is highly unusual, especially today. Uh, so all along, I've been interested in, in, in how uh, the growth of churches and, and in fact, how they die. Um, and then when I came to the Pacific Northwest and the University of Washington, uh, I began to think about churches in this region. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but, but churched life in Pacific Northwest is rather rare, uh, and uh, most people don't go to church. Uh, but I did find and begin to find megachurches even in uh, the Pacific Northwest. For instance, there are 50 megachurches in Washington State. Um, and so it just became obvious that this is a, a big movement, and I think it is the way that most people do church. I think 50% of Americans who go to church in some form or another are attending a, a megachurch. 
So that's a huge, uh, that's a huge percentage of the American population. So I think it's a critical uh, idea and a critical um, question to ask, you know, what, what's going on? Why are most Americans uh, doing religion in these big atmospheres? So that definitely makes sense then, that if this is the way that people are doing church in 2020, 2019, and when this kind of emerged, um, as a scholar of religion, this is where one would definitely turn to look next. Yeah, you know, think about it this way. In 2000, I think there were 600 uh, megachurches. That is uh, people, 2,000 members in attendance or more in the United States. But today, I think in in 2020, something over 2,000 of those megachurch churches exist. So it's, it is a growing phenomena. And it, it, I I would, we would argue that uh, in our book, that this is the way people do church these days. And, and so we wanted to figure out what's what, why. Um, And so the research uh, that we did and, and, uh, was really in, in combination with a group who put together the reach research study and it was 25,000 uh, surveys along with 500 actual interviews with uh, newcomers, with uh, longtime members and with leaders. Uh, so this, uh, I think what I would say to your, to your readers is that this really tells you what's going on in the internal life of these churches and in the inner life of, of the members of these churches and their leaders. Uh, so you really, you really get a, a good sense of, of what's, what's going on in church life in American, in American culture. You sort of describe the work of the megachurch and really your book here as something like a story. And you start in the first section here by talking about desire, which is probably not the first way that I would have assumed a work of what I would consider to be sociology to talk about desire. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, that's, it, that's a great question. Um, I grew up and, and went to the university of Chicago and, uh, in my PhD program. And so rational, rational thought was the only way that we would do and think about religion. Um, and, and so we thought that people are rational thinkers when it comes to religion, or that was the presupposition that we took into many of our studies, Max Weber and others. Uh, and, and so what was important was theology. So thinking about what you believe and thinking about what you do when you do theology, that was the work of scholarship. Uh, but over these past 20 years, as I've done this work in the study of religion, it just became utterly clear that thinking and uh, thought processing is not the pathway into people's understanding of God or spirituality. Uh, that fundamentally, when people turn to what they think is God or spirit, it's out of desire for some sense of completion or peace or salvation. You know, Christians would talk about it that way. 
Um, and so at the heart, you know, this is a big change for us. At the heart of religion uh, is an embodied uh, perception of experiencing uh, what they see as salvation and freedom and, and joy in God or in Christ, as Christians would say. Um, so that really transformed our whole thinking about how we do uh, and, and think about how we do scholarship and the study of religion. Um, and I would argue that, that I think that is the key basis. I think people become religious out of desire. Um, and what we came up with is, is this whole idea, and this really happened about three or four years ago. I was at a, a retreat, and I was reading an essay by Emil Durkheim. And uh, Durkheim had this idea that humans are homo duplex. And, and I know that's a complicated word or phrase, but what he really meant was that humans are both intensely social, but also intensely individual in their desires. And so, uh, so the, the, the real challenge for the human condition is to bring together both the desire for personal fulfillment and that fulfillment in a group. And so we began to think of megachurches as the ideal kind of uh, merging of both this desire for, uh, to, well, as we said, to be high on God, which is a phrase that we got from one of the um, respondents, and to, but also to be merged with a group. Um, and, and those two things are often in friction in our own culture. And people are struggling with how to fulfill themselves, but also to do it within a group setting. Uh, how do you how do you mix those two things? This is really, I you know we really argue is this is kind of one of the fundamental challenges of what it means to be a human, and that mega churches, interestingly enough, are in one sense an answer to that question. Now. I don't think megachurch pastors are studying Emil Durkheim and thinking about homo duplex, but they certainly are in the process of doing what they do, uh, fulfilling this kind of fundamental need for human beings to be fulfilled in themselves, but also uh, with and, and for each other. So this emotive language combined with Durkheim's analysis helps to explain the title of the book, High on God. But maybe you could maybe walk us through a little bit more what that means is this sounds like it's related to, to drugs or some other visceral sort of high, uh, maybe just go into that a little bit more. Sure. You know, I'll give you a personal experience. This is, I, I talk about this in the beginning of the book. Um, I'm, my background is I went to the Princeton seminary and, and became a Presbyterian minister and, and was active and have been active in the church as a leader but got more interested in scholarship. And so I, I did my PhD and went in, you know, obviously I'm working at the teaching at the university of Washington. Uh, so it's, so, you know, these aren't just uh, professional issues. They're, they're personal issues. And, and uh, so I know what churches do and I've led church services and I've preached and, and done all those things, uh, you know, kind of in a liberal, liberal Protestant tradition. Um, 
So in one of the churches that I visited as a part of this uh, study is uh, a large church, and I, I won't tell you the specifics of it, but it had five services and each service was the same and uh, was quite an integrated congregation and very powerful preacher. Uh, and, uh, and so there's five services on Sunday and each one is the same and about 3000 people come to each service. And I had, you know, as a sociologist, I had sat in different areas of the congregation and in the third service, I was sitting you know, taking notes like a good sociologist. And, um, and as the, you know, the call to conversion or the, the, the altar call came up after the, uh, uh, the sermon, uh, I was continuing to take notes and I was just sitting there and, uh, all of a sudden this, uh, very powerful emotion, spirit, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, Christians would call that the Holy Spirit came over me and, you know, from my neck down, my whole body more or less involuntarily wanted to walk up to the altar to, you know, to embrace the pastor and be saved. Um, and, you know, I think people will find this kind of peculiar, especially if they have not experienced this, but it was you know, I use the word radically empirical. That That is, it was real. It wasn't just in my head. In fact, it wasn't in my head at all. It was in my body. Uh, so uh, now I didn't respond. You know, basically as a, a scholar, I said to myself, well, this is unethical. I can't, I can't, you know, participate in the, in the uh, research that I'm doing. Uh, so I didn't go forward but I had to talk my body out of it. Um, and that lasted about a minute. Uh, so, was, so what I would say to people who are studying this phenomena of religion, yeah, William James, uh, talks about this theory of radical empiricism. Uh, and, and so he takes seriously, not just what one thinks, but how one feels and one's perceptions and one's, uh, whole experience of what it means to be alive. And I think that's really important in the study of religion. And so that's really what I'm trying to do in this, in this book is try to explain to outsiders, particularly what happens in these churches and why are they so powerful? Um, and it's not just in the head. It's not a, it's not a, uh, you know, it's really in the body. And so we, in, in the process of, right in the book, we came up with a theory of religion, uh, this kind of embodied choice theory um, to get away from rational choice theory uh, and to say, no, 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 this is, uh, this is an embodying, embodying process. And, and then we tried to, to explain that and show the, the steps by which mega churches do this work. I'd love to go more into that. And the second section talks about that. But before we do that, Maybe mentioned in in Washington and Oregon, and obviously there there are bastions of megachurches here in the United States. But you do spend a good deal of time in the first section talking about the origins of the megachurch phenomenon. Does not necessarily come from, say, Protestantism or even Americanism. Where does this megachurch idea come from? Yeah, this is you know we so this 
looking at megachurches kind of forced us to to begin to think about this process in a in a long range historical view, and I began to think of uh, of Saint Paul in particular. I don't think Jesus. I think Jesus fits. I don't think Jesus fits the whole idea of a megachurch pastor, although. What I would say about that is that Jesus's appeal is deeply emotional. It's obviously within the teaching mode of, of those early first century rabbis, but there's a sense there's a sense in which um, Jesus is known for his love, and it, people experience that and were drawn to it. And many of his healing miracles were not because he intentionally touched someone, but somebody touched him and felt healed. And so that healing process, you know, the whole idea of embodied choice theory is that, is that this is a power external to us and we want to feel it in our bodies. And so I think Jesus in in that sense is kind of the perfect exemplar of that process. Uh, But also Jesus brought uh, disciples to him, obviously and then sent them out. Uh, and so the process of coming together and then going out to, uh, to fulfill this good news and to share this good news, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentile, to all people, is, is the beginning of something quite extraordinary, obviously, in, in terms of Christian history. But the person that we really thought was the key factor, the kind of you know, I suppose the uh, earliest megachurch pastor is, is I think, St. Paul, who, you know, had, had basically created congregations all over the uh, all over the Mediterranean, um, even into the West and, and to the East. So uh, so, you know, we began to think of St. Paul as kind of an early uh, sort of megachurch pastor in the making Um and so, yeah, in that sense, I, I would say that uh, uh, that no, this is this is not just an American phenomena. And we know today, for instance, that megachurches are huge in Latin America. I just got back from a, a conference in Israel and at the University of Haifa on Jewish and Christian Zionism, which is another phenomena altogether. But we had had many scholars from Latin America and particularly from Brazil where megachurches are huge Pentecostal prosperity gospel megachurches, which are also quite Zionist in an interesting, interesting kind of phenomena going on. And um, so it's clear that uh, this, you know, I I began to think after listening to these 15 or, or 20 scholars on Brazil that prosperity gospel Pentecostal churches are the civil religion of Brazil these days. And I think in the, in the Southern hemisphere, the spread in Africa in sub-Saharan Africa, um, mega churches are huge. The prosperity gospel is a powerful motivator for folks. And so this whole embodied uh, uh, theory of religion is, is, is really obvious now uh, that um, this is not just a rational uh, choice that people are making. They are, they are making it because they are 
uh, you know, let's to use the title of my book, High on God. Um, and it's real. Um, you know, William James again said that uh, anything that's empirical has real effects in the world. Uh, these churches have huge effects in the world, politically, culturally, and in terms of healing families and to helping families maintain, um, you know, their discipline and staying together, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's a, so, and then across history, I think in various forms, as you see the development, particularly in the West of, of the construction of buildings as, as, as that this became possible that allowed for large populations of human beings to gather together. Um, and as we talk about in the, in our megachurch book, co-presence, that is co-presence with a large group of people. I mean, the Super Bowl is, is one of those obvious uh, examples of the power of co-presence is spectacularly potent on what it, what happens inside human bodies. Um, and so uh, this co-presence became possible because architecture developed and buildings could hold larger and larger groups of people and the reformation and, and uh, took on, you know, building larger structures. And then of course, in the Americas and, and in England, you get the development of uh, preachers who who are not just preaching for their single congregation, but are are literally hitting the trail and beginning to go into the streets and and preach to the masses. Um, and so you have a whole history of the development of this idea of reaching out to the largest group possible to with your message of the of the freedom of the gospel. So it sounds like what you're describing there are those pistons of desire and power, which does relate to what you mentioned a minute ago about this new decision theory that you've come up with, this embodied choice theory. And you bring out in the, sex, the second section there is sort of six core desires that really make the megachurch work, like what causes it to be the influence that it is. Could you tell us a little bit more about this embodied choice theory and these six key core desires? Um, you know, after studying these churches, we, we began to try to figure out like, what is the process by which people enter into these churches and become caught up in these churches? And, um, and, you know, through these, you know, 25 surveys, 25,000 surveys and all these interviews, we began to chart out and, and, and pick up on themes. And, um, obviously one of the early themes was, uh, was, was a sense of belonging and, and kind of radical acceptance. Uh, when you come into these churches, not all church, all, not all mega churches, but many have uh, people who are uh, basically there to greet you. Um, you know, one mega church we talk about is it was raining and, and these young people came out of the building, opened the doors with coffee and umbrellas and met us in the parking lot. And, you know, basically escorted us into the building and you can't help but feel like, ah, oh, wow, all my needs are being met. Uh, and I feel accepted, you know, and they ask your name and they, uh, then you come in, um, you know, to these uh, environments 
and you're immediately met often by young people who are smiling and and have information and especially if you have children uh there's there's a group for sunday school that tells you where each uh, of your child is 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 welcome to come everyone's smiling it's uh clean it looks organized it looks like people care about you it feels good to be there um and this is a huge deal especially for newcomers is is a sense of welcome and a, and a sense that i'm accepted uh, so, you know, it's kind of this fundamental human uh, desire is, is, is to belong somewhere and to be accepted. Uh, and and megachurches pull this together really, really very well. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to touch on every single one of these. I'm just looking on page 81. You've got them all laid out. If there's any that just really appeal to you, just feel free to, you know, just keep talking through them as you'd like. So, you know, after this sense of being accepted is, uh, you know, um, you come into these congregations and, and they're usually huge halls. Uh, so the challenge for these uh, megachurch members and, and pastors is to uh, allow people to feel welcome, even though they're in this huge space. Um, and these buildings are usually uh, look, you know, look really more like uh, huge caverns. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's really a struggle. So a part of this is the musical element of, of megachurches. And there's been work done on this. Um, and music, you know, popular music that megachurches use uh, is very much a produced mode. Um, people make fun of it. But when we talk to people who had studied how the production of music happens, it is a, a very specific type of pattern that they're looking for. And that is a kind of a slowdown, a speed up, and then a slowdown. So that there's kind of movement even within the singing so that people feel uh, moved towards uh, a sense of being welcomed, a sense of of what we call the hack, the happy. That is a sense that, wow, this is the place to be. This is the place I want to be. And many of these churches are really looking for and hungering for young people. And so there has to be music that is relatable to young people. And so that, that is very much, you know, they, they invest incredible amounts of, of capital in their musical systems and their sound systems. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, a part of this process is to make people feel at home that this music is relatable. It's, it's music that you've heard before uh, on the radio. It's, it's music that makes you feel like you're a part of something really, um, very powerful. Um, and the third, the third desire is, is, and, you know, I think this is a desire that many people look for is that some sort of reliable leader. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, what we'd say about megachurches is that they're led by uh, charismatic individuals, usually. Um, and a lot of people wonder, you know, what, what is charisma? What is charisma? And, and, and what we uh, sort of, our shorthand for that is a reliable leader. Um, and that is somebody who you can relate to somebody who is uh, looks like you in in some sense or another, um, 
and has a sense that of where you are. So many of these uh, pastors will talk about their own lives and talk about their own problems and talk about what uh, talk about questions that you have in your own personal life and your own pro- professional life. And then they begin to uh, use the scripture, use their personal stories, use stories from their lives to kind of weave a, an answer uh, to the questions that you have coming into this, um, these congregations, uh, these megachurches. And so what we found uh, from the, the surveys is that uh, you surveyed these megachurch members feel like their pastor is speaking directly to them, uh, directly to their heart, directly to their head, directly, directly to their existential being. Uh, so it's, it's quite an experience when you see people um, talking about their pastor as if he were Jesus. In fact, many people compare their megachurch pastors to Jesus. Um, that 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 the 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 spirit of Jesus just pours through him, and uh, you know that that kind of is a central factor in why these mega churches really grow um, and die. Uh, you know we've we've seen and studied churches where a mega church either a pastor either um, had to retire or had to leave for some other reason, um, and you know it's sort of the sort of like the electricity goes out of the room and, and, uh, the charisma that, that I've talked about is, is, is really disappears. Um, so, you know, and then, uh, you know, the, 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 the next factor, the fourth factor is, is, uh, deliverance. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of are suspicious of this. That is, um, you know, what is this is, 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 are people being manipulated at these churches? Is this kind of a, a manipulative process whereby they get you to be happy, they get you to feel welcome, they get you to feel accepted, they get you to feel like you need them, and then they offer you salvation, and and uh, uh, and and then uh, then they got you, and then they got your money. Uh, I think a lot of outsiders would would feel and say that these these mega churches are kind of manipulative and and wanting people's money. Now it's not as if they don't get money. I mean, it's that what we found is that these churches are, are, are able to take in a, a, you know, and, and function at a, at a very spectacular rate in part because they are able to um, get folks to tithe what that means to give 10% of their income, which is, you know, a huge, huge amount of money in many of these churches that are, that are, that we, Think about, um, but more than that, more than a manipulation, is the fact that people feel um, delivered. That there's some problem or question that these pastors are able to answer, and there's a sense of deliverance, whether it's from a old habit, drug habit, or from a bad relationship or from being stuck in a job or from, uh, you know, whatever existential crisis a person might be going through over and over again, we found through the interviews is that these people feel 
that they have found an answer. And it's practical. It's not, uh, it's not just abstract uh, that they found a new vocation or they found a new way of being or they found happiness that they had never felt before or they found forgiveness for a past error in their life or sin or whatever you want to call it that they were trying to get over or that they found hope that overflows now um, and they want to come back to these services over and over again. So, um, you know, in one of these congregations that I uh, that I attended uh, was the day before I was in the congregation on Sunday, and the day before the church had just sent out 600 uh, volunteers to uh, a city park, and the the city uh, elders had not been able to have the money to fix their, fix up the city park. And, and so 600 volunteers from that church basically repainted and fixed up and, and, and really re, re, uh, refurbished the whole park. Uh, and not only that, but they, the church had thought of the idea of creating a, a, a place where people could come and, and get food in a clothing pantry and uh, and they gave out free uh, t- certificates to policemen and to um, firefighters in, in the whole city so that if they came upon people that were in need, they could give them these, these certificates and people could come to the church and get whatever they needed. So, you know, I think what we discovered is that these you know, we were really suspicious of these churches. We really were. Uh, but we came away with the idea that these churches really are uh, meeting people's needs and then also sending them out to, to serve and help others in the community, regardless of whether people believed or not. Um, and uh, so, the you know, the last thing that, the last kind of desire that they meet is this desire for, um, you know, congregation. That is, to uh, be friends with each other. So they create small groups and uh, small groups uh, are really a part and, and a key part of all these mega churches. And that is they, they get with people who are similar to them and six to 10, uh, six to 10 to 15 people in each group. And then they go through processes of finding out about themselves, about each other, uh, discovering their unique capacities and gifts uh, praying for each other, uh, having food together, um, and meeting kind of these you know fundamental human needs for companionship for and of course, you know many marriages come out of this out of these mega churches, um, people finding their mates. So um, you know all, with all of this with all of this, I'm saying that these I came in very suspicious. We were very suspicious of these megachurches, um, and and we came away thinking, no, they they are doing kind of fundamental core things for human beings that uh, are not met in elsewhere, um, and so it was, it was it was kind of overwhelming to us after a while that these churches were doing uh, real good in their congregations in their communities. I must admit, I had a similar bias coming into reading this book, wondering how um, these megachurches could be depicted, because as we know, there is a darker side 
to these these goods that they're answering that some of these things can be manipulated and you do spend the third section of the book talking about um how the parts of mega churches which are compelling can be used for bad or that there are parts of mega churches that just seem to have in their essence these negative things such as soft patriarchy um or even uh thinking about things like hashtag me too or hashtag church too could you talk a little bit more about these negative aspects of megachurches? You know, like I said, I mean, we we had our own prejudices coming into the study. And we wanted to sort of be the book that, you know, exposed what the megachurches were, were really all about. And so this book took, in fact, I think you said four years. It really took seven years. Um, and about halfway through that process, um, we realized that scandals are not the story of megachurches, um, and that most megachurches are doing these this, these goods for people. Um, and so, so that was kind of a shock. That was really a, a learning that we had to come to grips with to really figure out what was going on here. Um, and so, and, but scandals are, are, you know, they're interesting and they're, and they're, and they're scandalous. I mean, some of the scandals are so crazy. It's, it's almost bizarre, but what we did then was, uh, you know, sociologists, we wanted to figure out what's the rate of scandals in terms of megachurches. And we assumed the rate of scandal, uh, within megachurches would be relatively high. But after going through all the scandals over the last 20 years, we calculated that megachurches are, uh, scandals occur in megachurches at a rate of one to 2%. So that's, so that was, that number itself kind of shocked us, is that this is not, a common occurrence, at least as far as what we could tell. And, and honestly, and, and, and to your listeners, we were looking for scandals uh, and, uh, and we just didn't find that many. Um, but of course we found, you know, the, the scandals are all over the newspapers. So if, if all you read was newspaper accounts of megachurches, you think that that's all they do is, is create scandals. Um, and, of course, the scandals are are salacious. I mean, they're horrendous, uh, uh, but and they're typical, really, of, of the human condition. And and we basically uh, discovered that m- most are are either have to do with sex or with money, which you know that's what else do human beings do uh, when they do something scandalous? Is that uh, these pastors and and we we use this theory of soft patriarchalism. That is, um, these pastors weren't controlling in sort of a hideous sort of way, but when things went badly, uh, uh, pastors would use their power, uh, their patriarchal power to, uh, manipulate either young people or, uh, women in the case of Bill Hybels or, um, uh, going after money within the system, uh, to, to, uh, 
control and to manipulate people into either um, sexual favors or uh, coming away from those churches with more money than they than they ought. So, you know, the the scandals are are the thing that most people know about mega churches who don't really are not familiar with these churches. But from our point of view, that really wasn't the story. Um, uh, even though that's that's what we read in the newspaper. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah, the, the the surprise of the book is that the mega churches are not altogether are are relatively uh, infrequent in terms of scandals. I have to say, I was surprised when I saw Appendix C, which is sort of a list of scandals, and it's only three full page spreads. Um, you're right. If one just simply reads the news, it seems as if there's some new scandal uh, happening every week at your local neighborhood church. But it is good to know that more of this impact is a group of 600 people fixing a local park or helping those who don't have the means to help themselves, which is a good end to the story, I think, in some ways. But you mentioned that you... I, I really wish... Um my fear is that is that people will look at this the title of this book and think that it is kind of sarcastic or cynical um and in many ways we started from that perspective but we came away with an altogether different point of view on this is that in fact these churches have become places where human beings can flourish and um, and so I think that's an untold story. And, and I really hope that that the book is received as as a surprise for many people. <clears throat> uh, that that, in fact, um, things aren't as bad as what people think they are uh, and and that churches are, are trying to do the best they can to uh, really engage people. Um, you know, one of the things I would end with is that uh, megachurches in many ways are kind of the recreation of small towns within big cities often or suburbs. Uh, and so what we kind of came to thinking about, came to, to think about this is that megachurches really are reintroducing a community and, and, and a sense of community for Americans. And we know that Americans in general are, you know, deeply lonely uh, and have a hard time finding companionship and, and, and a sense of uh, community. And that so megachurches are, I think, really kind of a source uh, that is, you know, in some ways untapped for many people. Uh, and uh, so that's that's my way of saying I, I really hope people read the book because I think they'll be surprised. As I mentioned, I, I definitely was, but it is hopeful, I think, to see that these benefits, these much needed benefits are being carried out. I think there's a lot that many in different faith traditions have to learn from, from these, uh, from this phenomenon. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that about wraps up our time, Jim. Uh, before we close up, I'd like to know if there's any other projects that you're working on that you'd like to share with us. Well, you know what, I, in the last two years, I've I've done a course on um, a life worth living, and um, 
what I, and this is, I've, I've called it religion 101. And uh, what I do is, is for undergraduates at my university, I take them through, uh, you know, a 10 week course on, on various um, pieces of literature and experiences where people have found a life worth living. And what I've discovered is that many of our undergraduates have no contact with, you know, the great literature of religion, philosophy, uh, and, and sources of, of uplift. And so it's been, a, it's been eye-opening to watch undergraduates come at the end of these courses um, and write 10-page papers on their philosophy and their plan for their lives. Uh, and see them kind of come alive for the first time. And so <clears throat> it's not, I don't preach. I don't, uh, uh, it, this isn't about converting anyone. It's really using the sources of the Western tra- tradition to uh, say to, to young people, hey, there's sources of encouragement, uh, sources of, of inspiration, sources of community service that you can draw upon to really make a life worth living. And so it's been, it's been very fun to see, see the responses from it. And so, you know, out of that, I've kind of uh, begin to think about a a book that I might write based on, on the experience in this course. Um, Yeah. So, and another project that we're doing is, is uh, a, a less positive and less inspiring Project, but that that is on religious nationalism, and of course we're thinking about Trump and and white nationalism in in America. I mean, Trump in a sense is is America's megachurch pastor par excellence, and 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 the way in which he uses uh, Christianity to his benefit. But uh, that's not such a positive. Uh, project, but but this is going on. Kind of the the binding together of of religion and nationalism is happening in Latin America. It's happening in Africa. It's happening parts of Europe. It's happening uh, in Asia. Uh, so I think it's a it's kind of a unique phenomena in our political life uh, as a as a world. So that's that's something we're working on as well. And it's definitely a topic that needs more work as well. Um, as well as your course. Uh, both, both of these things seem very pertinent in today's time. But we've been talking with Dr. Jim Wellman on his new book, High on God, How Megachurches Won the Heart of America. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. We've been happy to have you. Yeah, it's been great to be with you, Will. I appreciate it. Great, thanks. And we'll talk to you again, perhaps when the new book on religion and nationalism comes out. <laughs> yes, that'd be great. <laughs>